Podcases, a neuroscience podcast created for medical students. To get the most out of this episode, we recommend downloading the supplementary case notes which are available on Vital. Here you'll find more information about the case, including history, examination and investigation findings. We hope you enjoy listening. Hello and welcome. Uh, my name is Viraj and uh, this is the Neuro Podcases series. Um, today we're very lucky to have Nick Carlton Bland with us. Um, Mr. Carlton Bland is a consultant neurosurgeon here at the Walton Centre and also lead uh, for the neurosurgery department. He's uh, kindly given us his time today to talk about neurosurgical history taking. Um, and before I, as a neurologist, talk uh, too much more about that, uh, maybe I hand over to him to, to sort of introduce the topic, um, and then we'll move on to a case afterwards. So, Mr. Carlton Bland, um, neurosurgical history taking. Why does it matter? What are the bits that matter most? Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Viraj. Um, so, yeah, so I think that obviously the, t- the two specialities are, are relatively linked, neurology and neurosurgery. There are some certain commonalities, and I think in the history there are a few things which are the same. So when we're looking at a patient who presents with a certain set of signs or symptoms, two of the questions we're thinking about is, is, is where is the lesion? So we're searching our memory banks and thinking about our neuroanatomy and trying to figure out exactly where the size of the problem is. Then the second thing is, what's the nature of the lesion? And we think, obviously, in neurology, you may be thinking more about inflammatory disorders or vascular disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in surgery, we see those occasionally, but obviously we're thinking more about the, uh, the surgical lesions. So we're thinking about tumours and we're thinking about um, trauma and so on. So I think those are the commonalities, that kind of always thinking about where the lesion might be and what it might be. Um, and the way that we do it is very similar into neurology, you know, looking at the timings and the associated things within the history. I think the other bit of the neurosurgical history which um, diverges slightly is the patient's uh, fitness for surgery and that's something you're always screening with so you you take the neurological part of the history as I call it um, but then you are also thinking about the past medical problems specifically for are they fit for surgery so you ask them about their cardiac disease but then you ask them functional metrics like can they climb up a flight of stairs have they got a bleeding disorder all of these things that in the back of your mind you're always thinking well if this person required surgery um, would they be fit for it? Because that obviously will change the management uh, entirely. If they're not fit for surgery, then you know we we are unlikely to be able to be to be helpful. Um, and I think the other other area, which is I think very difficult as a medical student level, and it's something you really develop as a registrar, is then try and tally the symptoms that they have and the likely outcome of a surgical intervention. Uh, and often they can be quite divergent. And so the only way to really know what surgery can and can't help with is through experience. Um, so I think for today, localising the lesion, think about the nature of the lesion and thinking about the, the fitness for surgery um, are the key things. Now, the other way that we think about pathologies is not through just the history taking, but our pre-knowledge of certain conditions. So we're thinking about subarachnoid hemorrhage, we're thinking about a subdural, we might think about a brain tumour. Already in your head, there are patterns of commonalities that you'll think with. So for a subarachnoid hemorrhage, it may be a very quick event, whereas a brain tumour may be over several weeks. Um, and I think the history taking is, is gathering that history, and then you try and fit it into one of those pathways that you already have. Um, and, and I think that's a general skill across medicine. Um, but again, with neurosurgery, there are a few topics which I think th- these cases will illustrate the kind of uh, topics we need to think about. Fantastic. Yeah, so it's uh, so actually quite a lot to think about there in the history taking, uh, especially at sort of med student level, to kind of um, to, to juggle all those balls in the air at the same time. But hopefully, 
uh, with this case we can try and sort of illustrate what, what all those things mean and, and, and uh, that actually it, it, can, it can be quite simple. So, uh, so I'll, I'll read out the case first and then we can, we can, we can pause at particular points and chat through it. Um, so we have a 70 year old right handed female, the presenting complaint is headache and drowsiness and she presents along with her daughter who's coming with her. Uh, she's coming with a two month history of a holocephalic headache um, and it's strange because she doesn't usually get headaches like this. She says they're certainly worse in the morning and as she sort of stands up and walks about they get better as the day goes on. Um, the daughter sort of interjects a little bit and does want to say that yeah, mum's been a bit more muddled than usual over the last sort of month or so um, and the last week she's really not been herself. Um, usually she's quite social and quite chatty and she's been spending more time asleep and a bit drowsier throughout the day. Past medical history includes uh, COPD and peripheral vascular disease. The past surgical history includes a cholecystectomy, this was more than 20 years ago. Uh, the drug history includes the COPD inhalers and she's also on clopidogrel. And uh, the social history includes uh, that she's got a 40 pack year smoking history but has quit as of the last five years um, and drinks around 40 units of alcohol a week. So that's the history up to that point. Um, any sort of uh, comments or any salient points in that history that you think that, that might be worth highlighting? Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's, there's a huge amount there to work upon. Taking those various points that I mentioned before, you know, 70-year-old uh, patient, um, already you're thinking of certain potential uh, problems there. So older people obviously are much more likely, unfortunately, to develop things like brain tumours. Um, but also, um, in the back of our minds, we're always thinking about uh, slightly more uh, long-term processes and, and, and things like dementias and so on. So already you're, 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 you're kind of thinking of some differentials more than others. Um, then going into headaches and drowsiness. So headaches, incredibly common uh, presenting complaints. And really we need to drill down on, on what the nature of that headache is. Drowsiness, I think, is, is important. Um, it certainly shows that there's, a, there's a, a reduction in cerebral function. And then, you know, we've got to try and think, what might that be? Could it be a systemic thing that they are anemic or their COPD is getting worse and they're drowsy and you know, not sleeping well and drowsy for that reason? Or is there a primary brain thing? So I guess um, there's, a, there's a lot there. Then the next thing we go on is the actual history of the presenting complaints as you've presented it. Uh, two months. So that ain't going to be a sudden bleed, is it, or, or a fit. This is something which has been there for quite a consistent amount of time. And then very interestingly, and one of the key historical things in neurosurgery is any sort of postural element to the to the the headaches so if the patient mentions that if they cough or if they sneeze they raise their intracranial pressure and that makes the the, the symptoms worse then that's a significant thing uh, worse in the mornings we tend to see uh, raised icp raised intracranial pressure worse in the mornings for a couple of factors one the patient's been lying flat and so their venous return is reduced and so their brain is slightly inflated Two, they slightly underbreathe, the CO2 builds up, and again, if you have low-grade raised intracranial pressure, it'll be unmasked. So I think the symptoms being worse in the morning is a real key thing, and, and you'd want to explore that with the history. The fact that it gets better when you're stood up and the venous drain is reduced and you're breathing a bit quicker, I think fits in with that. Um, more muddled, again, it's pretty non-specific in a 70-year-old. It could be something as simple as a UTI, but in this context, you, you've got to try and you know, localise that to a primary brain problem um, and really the, the nature, um, we perhaps think there may be a postural element, so perhaps we're thinking of, of something which is causing raised intracranial pressure. 
past medical history is useful because obviously COPD is, is, is certainly an important thing. Peripheral vascular disease, that's a soft marker for potential brain vascular disease and you know, there could be an element of, of a deterioration from a vascular dementia perhaps. Um, the clopidogrel, absolutely key. So if you were clerking this patient straight away, alarm bell, this patient couldn't have an operation for perhaps two weeks if they needed it acutely. So uh, that's, that's a significant thing. Um, so I think that's all I've been able to extract from that part of the history. Obviously, you would hopefully then go on and unpick more of the historical details of the nature of the headache. Um, but uh, yeah, was there anything else you wanted to say at that point? No, absolutely. I think I think, I think you've illustrated quite well there that even with quite a curtailed history that as, as I've given you there, there's an awful lot that one can draw if they're thinking in the right way, if they're thinking about causality, if talking, talking about the risk factors and things like that. So I think um, that, that, that's great. I think at this point for the, for the history. So. Um, to, I guess, I guess there's there's a differentiation that we make in, in neurology and neurosurgery between sort of primary headache disorders, which is generally the confines of, of neurology, uh, and secondary headache disorders, which you know most of which is the confines of neurosurgery, but some of which kind of fall in that Venn diagram. Are there any particular, and, and, and this is relevant, I guess, because the nice guidelines which you know students or doctors might follow quite a lot, they really the, the, the red flags as we talk about them the red flags talk about secondary headache disorders that's what we're talking the red flag if you have a red flag it's pointing to a secondary headache disorder mm -hmm. um now there are there are some features here that that we know of as being red flags um i think it might be worth just pointing out those that are red flags just so that students become a bit more comfortable with with with, with that as a concept really okay um, so a nice guideline red flag uh, may correlate with what I have in my mind as a, as a, as a red flag. Um, specifically from this history, I think the length of time of the of the headaches. I mean, usually headache is an incredibly common phenomenon. Most people get them uh, and they are transient. So I think a prolonged period of, of headache uh, is important. I think the, the the nature of this headache being the, the whole of the head, the holocephalic, um, is quite useful often patients will come and describe to you a very specific focal headache and that's rarely a worrying symptom but I think a, a whole head headache for two months really suggests a sustained uh, symptoms which suggest perhaps raised intracranial pressure and the, the posture element the the the, the, the diurnal uh, variation I think also points towards a, an organic secondary headache was there anything specifically you're thinking else yeah, so I guess from a neurology point of view, we obviously see a lot of headaches, uh, but, but the things that kind of raise alarm bells for us is if someone's not had, had headaches before and all of a sudden uh, at the age of 70 they start getting new headaches, that's a you know, new mm. onset headache and anyone over the age of sort of 50 is, is, is abnormal and certainly needs further investigation. And then also some of the lifestyle facts, so, so being on clopidogrel, um, you know, any minor trauma in elderly people, especially those that perhaps drink over the recommended units, mm. um, you know, it, it predisposes to particular types of uh, secondary causes, which we can investigate a bit further after the, yeah. after the examination. And I suppose the, the, pack, the smoking history as well, again, lung tumours are, are the mm. most likely to metastasize to the brain. And so, yes, there, there, are, there are some, uh, some issues there. Fantastic. Okay, so um, to, to move on with the case the, in the examination, uh, so when you examine her, she's alert and orientated and sat up in bed and responsive. Uh, her blood pressure is 120 over 88, and her heart rate is quite normal, as is her uh, respiratory rate and her SATs. The examination, actually quite unremarkable, um, with normal power, cranial nerves are quite normal, there's no sensory abnormalities. And the reflexes are also quite normal, but you do notice uh, upgoing planters bilaterally. So, not, not an awful lot to take away there from the history. Um, 
but at this stage, I guess, how, how do you move on in terms of uh, further management and investigation? Yeah, so I think, there, I mean, as you say, uh, there's nothing particularly focal there, and uh, uh, that's often the case. Um, and so, the, the really, the, 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 if you were to put in a, a table of, of the importance, the history is absolutely vital, um, and often the examination findings confirm what you're thinking. In this, obviously, we talk about the upgoing planters, so an upgoing Babinski is not a normal finding, um, and that's certainly suggestive of, of some pathology. It may not be relevant to this. Um, anything that affects the descending inhibition uh, from the brain, anything that interrupts that flow can lead to a recurrence of that, uh, of that basic reflex. So this patient might have compression within their neck or within their thorax, pressing on the spinal cord to give this um, but certainly a primary brain problem could, could also lead to this, um, this um, picture. Um, but yeah, so, so I think really, you know, as surgeons, we are pretty much focusing on anatomical problems. Um, and the, 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 the great gift of, of imaging really is you can see if there's an anatomical problem. So um, we as surgeons are very, very uh, image driven um, and to our detriment, sometimes more image driven than we are uh, clinically driven but that's that's purely because uh, often a lot of our referrals are patients who aren't in the hospital and we, we have to go on the history and we have to go on the uh, uh, the image findings um, so for this patient I would um, say in the first instance a CT brain would be a useful uh, starter why not an MRI scan well CT is an incredibly ubiquitous uh, tool every A&E department will have perhaps more than one of these scans um, and it'll tell you a great deal of information um, uh, obviously there is a, a radiation dose associated with this um, so there, there is uh, some uh, concerns about CTing patients and patients who come in recurrently with headache we do start to worry that are we potentially causing the patient harm but in this case a single episode of prolonged headache, a CT scan would be useful. Um, CT scan can show you a number of things um, in an acute history with an acute sudden onset of headache. It will show acute fresh blood because the iron in the heme uh, is very dense and that will show up as a, as a white um, uh, or hyper-dense um, finding on the CT scan. If blood is older and the macrophages have been in there and they've removed the iron, uh, then the blood is, is less easy to see because it's more... Um, isodense with the brain and with the CSF but certainly you, you may be able to see some acute bleeding um, the other useful thing is that you can see calcification so if you have abnormal calcification so a long-standing brain tumor or a long-standing infected abscess may well calcify and that would be a useful finding and then the other system or, or, or part of the brain that is very well imaged is the ventricular system because there's a very good um, contrast between the brain and the fluid and so you'd be able to look at the ventricular system um, and, and, uh, and, and assess that. However a single scan is not always that useful um, and if there are previous imaging on the, on the system then you can compare that and for certain conditions like hydrocephalus looking at a progressive increase in size of the ventricles is, a, is a very useful information and for patients with VP shunts it's one of the, the best ways to assess it is to actually have multiple uh, episodes of imaging but I think in the first instance a CT scan um, would, be, would be the first thing I would do. Brilliant. Okay, that, that really runs down uh, CT scans, I think, for, for neurosurgical complaints and also what happens to blood and how it appears on CT over time. It's very, very helpful. Um, so, uh, I guess to, 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 to come back to this case, um, there's an image we have, an, an image the um, students will have access to, uh, which demonstrates this. Would you, would you mind just talking us through that image and perhaps linking it back to history to explain why it is the patient might have those symptoms? 
Absolutely. So, I mean, image interpretation is absolutely key as a junior doctor and as a medical student because medicine is so image driven. It's such an incredibly useful modality to, to do. So this is one of the key skills that I think um, uh, any sort of medical student should be working on is getting the agreed nomenclature for reporting a scam. This is useful because you confer and transmit the information in a standardised way so things aren't missed. Um, but also from a, you know, looking towards OSCEs, which of course we all are, um, it makes you sound like you've been experienced and you've been on the wards and, and you know how to describe the findings. Um, so what we can see here is a single sliced image of a axial section. So obviously you, you know about coronal and sagittal planes. This is an axial CT head. Um, and the first thing we do is really try and decide where we are. Now, it's, it's difficult when you first start looking at CT scans of the head to figure out where you are. Sometimes you can see uh, nose, eyes or ears and you know you're relatively low down in the scan. Um, you can't see any of those uh, guides here. So we know that we are relatively sort of mid-brain um, in terms of the level, but I wouldn't expect uh, a medical student to really comment too much on the on, on the level of the scan. There's not huge amounts to, to know about a CT scan. I mean, we know it's an X-ray modality, and the way that it works is the X-rays pass through air and fluid pretty well, and therefore are picked up um, as dark on the scan. And we know that the X-rays can't pass through very dense materials, so we can see on the CT scan a large, dense area, which can only be a calcified skull so we can see the, the skull there then as we're going down the, the ct scan if we can't make out any particular anatomical features like ventricles or or, or or lobes or whatever then probably the next thing to do and what the radiologist would do is compare left and right so most of the human body is based on uh, an element of, of of axial symmetry and so we're going to look at the left side and the right side to decide that now um quite Quite typically for an exam, there is no left and right markings on this um, CT scan. And that's an old trick um, because all axial imaging, uh, certainly in this country, uh, is standardised that we are looking up from the feet of the patient up towards the head. So we see the right side of the brain on the left part of the image and uh, the left on the right. So it's, it's a little bit difficult to get your head around, but that's a, a key trick. So if we're looking at the symmetry of this scan, we can see a nice calcified vertical line bisecting the, the head. Um, and that is the falx. So that's the stiff part of dura that separates the supratentorial compartment, the, the, the main compartment of the brain, into two halves. Um, so when we're looking at neurosurgical pathology, we're looking for big, gross shifts. So, we're, so the way that we assess if the, a mass is having an effect is we look for shifting. And we may see that falx actually being pushed across by um, pressure. And looking at this, we can see the falx is absolutely midline, and so there's no obvious mass effect on, on this scan that we can see. But then um, we have a little bit further, and we can see um, the, the substance of the brain, and we can make out the white matter, which is slightly darker, with these kind of frond-like projections. And then around that, we can see the outline, the grey outline of the brain. But then if you look carefully, there's another layer. So you can see this skull on the outside, you can see the brain, and then there is probably, it looks to be about a centimetre thick, a different layer. And if you look carefully towards the occiput, towards the back of the head, it's slightly more intense and whiter. And if you look as you go further towards the forehead, it's quite darker. So we can see quite a clear fluid level there. Um, and what do I mean by a fluid level? Well, when a patient's been lying in one position for a while, um, just if, if you like, if you leave a, a cup of, I don't know, um, fruit juice or something, you'll start to see it settling down with gravity. So the heavier elements within the fluid are brought down. And as we talked about before, blood is a mixture of heavy 
iron in the red cells and then a lot of fluid and, and, and what this scan shows you probably is that there is some mixed blood that has started to settle down. So already that we're seeing one, there's an abnormality and two, it probably is some element of, of uh, a bleed. Um, it's certainly not a particularly acute bleed because the majority of that layer is quite dark and, and, and iso intense. So I think this would be not an acute uh, event and we know from the history that it's a two month history and that would be quite typical because blood when it's surrounding the brain is relatively quickly broken down over a few weeks and so I think we've already identified there's an abnormal area it's probably some blood uh, and it appears to be on both sides so anything more about in terms of um, where the blood is so obviously as, as most students we learn about extradural hemorrhages and, and subdural and, and intraparenchymal um, is, could you pick that up from this image or would you need further imaging to work out where the blood where the breathing is? Absolutely, absolutely. so that was, that was the next thing to, to come on to really that, that as Viraj has said th there's only a few places you could possibly have a hemorrhage in within the brain um, so directly underneath the skull in the extradural space um, the, the appearance of that is is often it's described as a lens shape or, or a very uh, formed kind of uh, mass um, that uh, protrudes into the brain and the reason it, it adopts that kind of lens shape uh, appearance is because it's a it's a high pressure bleed that is pulling the dura off the skull so in the normal state the dura is closely applied to the inside of the skull um, this blood has stripped the dura off bit by bit from the inside of the skull and so it adopts that uh, curved lens shape the only thing which can possibly do that which requires quite a bit of force is an arterial bleed and so this would be a typical picture of a of an extradural type hemorrhage and um, so an extradural is an arterial bleed it's often in the context of an acute trauma so that really isn't the clinical picture for this so what's the next layer well the next layer in is beneath the dura or subdural so with this the, 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 the subdural space is really just the gap between the meninges and the brain itself and so if you were to get a hemorrhage there it wouldn't adopt that lens shape because there's no real uh, barrier to it completely surrounding the brain and so you get a lot more crescent shape um, which actually if you look at this you would say that the the layer of fluid is pretty much following the contours of the brain so this would be a crescent shape so this you could say would look more like a subdural bleed now the other two or three areas that you can bleed into is one into the brain substance itself an interparenchymal bleed or sometimes called an intercerebral bleed and that often is very spherical in origin um, and that is not the appearance at all with this um, you can bleed into the ventricle ventricular system we can't see the ventricular system here uh, at all uh, but that would conform to the shape of the ventricle and then there's the subarachnoid hemorrhage um, picture which is uh, appearance usually at the very base of the brain um, if it is higher up um, it tends to follow the gyri and sulci very very closely um, and so Again, this is not really a picture of this. So if you to pick the five places that you could bleed, this looks very much to fit in with a subdural uh, hemorrhage. This is often a venous bleed, and often for someone who's anticoagulated and perhaps a little bit older and has more brain atrophy, those draining veins going from the surface of the brain up towards the inside of the skull are pulled taut. And as the patient is slightly older, often the nature of these vessels are quite friable. And so a minor injury can lead to a low uh, volume bleed. And the way that it presents is is not necessarily straight away with a minor bump to the head. It's as the blood is broken down, because um, as the blood is broken to more and more constituent parts, the osmotic pressure is increased, and so it has it exerts some osmotic effects and draws fluid into the space. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think with the the, the long-term history and the history of anticoagulation, 
um, this would look like a subdural bleed. Um, has the patient got symptoms from it? Quite possibly, but they're quite low grade and the, the headaches and perhaps the postural element um, are fitting towards that there is probably some low grade um, raised intracranial pressure for this patient. Excellent. So I think I mean that's uh, that, that I think we've, we've we've gone through the etiology of uh, subdurals there and said you know they they originate from these bridging veins. We've gone through the typical bits of the history that you expect in sort of chronic subdurals or acute on chronic subdural hematomas. Um, and I think I think that we made a fairly good point of that. I think the other bleeds you touched on. Um, I wonder whether it's worth uh, explaining what the typical history of say an extradural is and of a, sub, of a subarachnoid because these are the kinds of things I think uh, the students will be seeing within the next few years as their junior doctors. Precisely yeah and I think it's, it's a good one to, to nail down really. Unfortunately there aren't many so um, we'll, we'll probably talk about um, a subarachnoid haemorrhage that's, that's um, often a favourite of, of examiners or when you're on the, on the wards a favourite of consultants uh, to, to ask you about because it is quite a common problem. So a subarachnoid haemorrhage is an arterial bleed. It's a, it's a, it's, it comes from a weakness or an aneurysm of the normal blood uh, vessels. Uh, so it's high pressure. And uh, when you get a high pressure bleed around the brain, you get symptoms very, very, very quickly. So the classic history would be a thunderclap headache. So a sudden headache that reaches maximal intensity within about a second. Uh, and often patients will feel that they've actually been hit, hit on the head, back of the head with a cricket bat is a, is a common uh, description of this and that's because it's a large volume very quickly and the blood is very irritating to the meninges and so they, they get all the signs and symptoms of meningism so they can get light sensitivity they can get a pain uh, with moving their neck because the because the, the dura is inflamed and certainly they get a headache um, so a sudden onset headache uh, to a neurosurgeon there is no other diagnosis until you've proven it isn't a subarachnoid hemorrhage um, so how would you make that diagnosis? Well, with a history like that, the very first thing we would do is, is a CT scan. And a CT scan within 24 hours on the modern um, uh, helical uh, scanners, um, we would pick up a bleed in perhaps 99.5% of cases. So it's an incredibly sensitive uh, test for subarachnoid hemorrhage. Um, if they have a very good history, but we can't see blood on that scan, or if it's a little bit later, perhaps a couple of days or so, then we would want to go on and try and confirm that with a lumbar puncture. Uh, and the reason we're doing that is we're taking off some of the CSF, the, that, that the CSF is in the subarachnoid space, it's the uh, fluid that would surround it, and we would look for blood products, and in particular, um, bilirubin. So bilirubin, you may well remember, makes up the heme ring. There's an enzyme that's only uh, found in the CSF, well, perform this breakdown of the heme ring into bilirubin. So often we, we want to allow that enzyme within the CSF to work and so we wouldn't do a lumbar puncture before about 12 hours. Um, but the the utility of waiting to see the bilirubin is because of course with a lumbar puncture you could get fresh blood just from the procedure itself and that's so but if you see bilirubin you know they've had a bleed more than 12 hours ago so that would be the way that we would diagnose it. Um, so that's a subarachnoid hemorrhage, uh, and we'll come on to that, I guess, in more detail at a later stage. Um, the extradural, uh, we mentioned before, it's, it tends to be young people. It tends to be people who've been in fights or in traumas, and often it'll be a blow to the side of the head. It doesn't have to be a huge blow. They don't have to be knocked out by it. Um, and the classic history would be a, of a lucid interval, that they, they sustain injury to the side of their head. Perhaps they have an hour or so of being slightly headachy, and then they suddenly collapse. Um, the mechanism for that really is, as we talked about, that there's a, a, a high-pressure artery, the middle meningeal artery, running on the inside of the temple uh, bone. 
a bang to the head could break that bone and injure the artery. And that artery will leak and leak and leak and continue to bleed for several minutes. And slowly, 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 the brain will be compressed. So why would it be perhaps up to an hour before they collapse? Well, the brain can put up with some increase in intracranial pressure. And we, we have that diagram or that concept, the, the Munro-Kelly doctrine, where we think about intracranial pressure being the brain and then the CSF and the blood. And we know that when a mass is exerted within the skull, the brain can buffer this to an extent by squeezing off some CSF, squeezing off some of the venous blood, but at some point there's no more buffering and it's a decompensation and an increase in, in, in brain pressure. And that's probably what re results in the sudden collapse of a patient with a extradural hemorrhage. So the actual brain injury with extradural hemorrhage is quite small. So it's, it's a very satisfying um, bleed to deal with because once you've removed that blood clot, often the patient is very, very well because they haven't had much in the way of brain injury. Um, and that compares very differently to a subdural bleed that often is a manifestation of a brain injury. And so when you, you remove a, a blood clot in, a, in the case of a subdural, um, often the patient has ongoing neurological problems because they've suffered a brain injury in addition to having the, the blood clot. Um, so we've talked about subdurals, subarachnoid hemorrhages and, uh, and extradurals. Was there anything else that you... No, I think, I, I think I think they're, they're the main ones that the, the, the students have been likely to come across, you know, early on in their careers. I think we talked about the salient parts of the history that you want to draw out, um, you know, partly being acuity, uh, how quickly the headache comes on, any of the associated sort of specific things, so, you know, uh, lucid intervals with extradurals, um, and the, the, I, think, I think people should be more confident in uh, getting those bits of the history from patients and, and, the, and their relatives when they present. Um, I think also we have a bit, bit of a better idea about what the salient parts of the history are to convey to um, neurosurgical on-call whenever you do come across these patients and need to refer them because these are the kinds of questions that are going to be asked of you in order for the, for the neurosurgeon to make their decision. And I think We've also summarised quite well that in addition to the normal parts of the neurological history we talk about, there's an aspect of trying to gauge the patient's functional status and their readiness or preparedness for surgery, uh, which is which is an extra dimension I think in the neurosurgical history, which um, which you know neurologists don't don't think about all the time. I no, guess. yeah, yeah, absolutely. So so I think that's right. So if we were to be conveying this story to a neurosurgeon, you know, what are the key bits in the history? Well. Um, as, as you've summarised, and as, as we've said, really the key things for, for say, trauma is is the timings and a very close history regarding uh, the timings of, say, an injury or the ictus itself. Um, I, I think that um, certainly phoning with um, an element of you know their surgical fitness and their pre-morbid state. Obviously, if we're referred a patient who is already critically unwell and then they have a neurosurgical problem, but then obviously they're not going to be well enough for surgery. So I think that's a really key idea to get the, the frailty or the overall functional status of a patient. Um, and we would expect pretty much being surgeons needing to see a surgical target, we would expect them to have a scan and we don't expect all the, all the medical students or junior doctors to, to be radiologists. But I think that um, the ability to pick up on, a, on an image or at least to be able to read the report out over the phone is, is, a, is a key thing because that gives you a packaged up question does this patient need an operation now obviously uh, we don't operate on every patient in fact the vast majority of patients referred to neurosurgery do not require an operation they require management because um, there's only a very specific set of criteria of patients who will benefit from surgery um, and mostly patients are too well 
occasionally, unfortunately, they're too unwell to benefit from surgery. Um, but yeah, no, I, th I think what we've talked about uh, and some in image interpretation and the, the history delivered in that, in that way would be, would be all that you would need for, for, for neurosurgery uh, referrals. Fantastic. I think we've uh, covered a lot of ground. That's quite a lot for the, for the listeners to take in. But uh, thank you very much for your time, uh, Mr. Carpenter, and um, hopefully we can uh, catch you again for another one in the future. Absolutely. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. Look out for more podcast episodes coming out shortly. Thank you.